this um, last year, uh, actually beginning sometime around this time of last year, since then it's not been the, the happiest time for me. As I have uh, had a few losses in my life, my father and uh, my grandmother, who was a kind of family icon and wonderful being, and my father who was, uh, you could say, my root guru, my hero of sorts. Um, Yet uh, throughout this entire year, uh, there has been available and fairly consistent sense of a, in spite of incredible retching grief at times to uh, just sadness, loss, etc. There's been accessible uh, a sense of peace and contentment uh, that somehow has felt to a degree untouched by, by um, what has happened. And I don't in any way mention this to um, set up a, some kind of a, you know, I'm special because I have this, but more the sense that uh, I have a certain confidence that there is within each of us a kind of happiness that doesn't have to do so much with the uh, smile on our face or the uh, particular mood of the day. It is somehow more, more um, fundamental. Tonight I'd like to talk about happiness, even in spite of this uh, time that has been at times quite unhappy in some ways. The Buddha, as you may have known, was called Sukhiya. Sukhiya means the happy one. So in spite of such emphasis uh, in the teaching on clarifying and coming to terms with the nature of, of suffering, the causes of suffering, and the end of suffering, uh, the Buddha clearly uh, was called Sukhiya, the happy one. So it is about happiness. Since the Buddha was called Sukhiya, I thought that I would talk a little bit tonight about the happiness of the Buddha and perhaps the happiness of all of us uh, that can be recognized and discovered through examining, reflecting on the kinds of happiness and the realizations that occurred in the life of the Buddha and see the parallels in our own practice. Because the Buddha was as you know a human being. He was not some celestial being, wasn't just a mythological figure, at least I don't think so. He was a human being who breathed, who, who uh, felt warm or cold, hungry, thirsty, who thought, who did a lot of thinking, did a lot of reflecting, did a lot of analyzing, did a lot of enjoying, and very much out of this world of many beings, this human being uh, became intensely interested in finding something in this world of name and form, something in the world of appearances that was reliable, some refuge, some home. So if we we start with where the Buddha started, at least least where the story to me gets interesting, is when he was at that phase of his life where he had um, 
arrived in the family of, um, of a king, of a, of, of a provincial king who offered him, uh, not unlike what we experience in our uh, Marin County or California or Western experience relative to the rest of the world, uh, lived in the lap of luxury, uh, being able to basically satiate uh, any kind of desire to be able to think up things to do and then have them simply appear almost at, at whim. And we've become quite expert at this. And he began to see that this world was, although it was filled with pleasure and he had every imaginable, imaginable pleasure and each of us to a degree has every imaginable pleasure available to us. He saw, though, that there was something unsatisfying about it and felt a a kind of yearning for something perhaps a little bit more substantial, a little less superficial, at least, as it appeared. And as the story goes, he was fortunate enough, as each of us is fortunate enough at various times in our life, although it might not seem fortunate, he was confronted with or was visited by uh, what are called the four heavenly messengers. And at that, at that point, he saw an extremely old person, an extremely um, ill person, someone who was not well. He saw a corpse, and he saw a renunciate. And each of these beings, which it, seemed, it seems maybe crazy that a 29-year-old person, at least at the point where it's said that he was visited by these heavenly rep. Uh, messengers. It would seem strange and odd that a 29-year-old person would have been oblivious to these facts of life. But it speaks to the the level of self-deception and delusion that it's very easy to live in as a human being. And whenever I get to this part of the story, I remember the the story of from the Bhagavad Gita where where uh, Arjuna, or one of the characters, is asked, what's the most wondrous thing in this world? And when asked what the most wondrous thing in the world is, uh, he responds, the most wondrous thing in this world is that millions, billions are dying all around us every day, but somehow we don't think it'll happen to us. And, you know, we snicker a little bit, but there is some capacity each of us has, and maybe it's built into the DNA or into the organism, to not recognize the the facts. But the Buddha was ripe, he was dissatisfied, and he saw an extremely sick person, an old person and a corpse, and of course the question arose, will this happen to me? And he was ready to hear the answer, and he said, of course it'll happen to, to me. Then he began to reflect, as many of us have before we come to a retreat like this, and even during the retreat, Boy, if you know if a human being is born and they get sick and they get old and they die, and they go through life and have all this experience, all this stuff, uh, and love and lose and love and lose and enjoy and not enjoy and praise and blame and loss and gain. There's, there's. It seems like it's going around a, a wheel that doesn't bring much lasting happiness. There must be more to life than that. There must be some reliable refuge to be found. 
So fortunately, he saw the fourth heavenly messenger in the form of a, a renunciate, a, a monk, who reminded him that there is a possibility of, um, of living a different way, or at least of relating to life in a different way, of relinquishing one's not so much experience of pleasures of the world, but the devotion to them as the source of one's well-being and happiness. And, of course, he heard about the teachers of the day, and I assume many of you are experts at the story of the Buddha, probably better than me, but I find it instructive just to reflect on the stages of happiness that occurred for the Buddha and that are possible for each of us. So he heard of a teacher who was some teachers who were teaching meditation practice, not um, elements of which are part of what we're doing here. And he went and started studying with these teachers. Now let's back up a little bit. You know, we all are in the middle of, of the same conditions that the Buddha found himself in relative to the rest of the world. Extraordinary pleasure. Extraordinary capacity to in, uh, enjoy the senses. Uh, the, the Buddha talked about this kind of pleasure. That, sukha is sometimes translated as happiness, but it's also translated as pleasure. And he said that there is this domain of pleasure, the pleasures of the senses, that is that our capacity to experience and enjoy is a very, it's a very wonderful thing. And it's a reflection of a certain purity in our lives, of our conduct, of our, of our hearts. If we're not causing harm and we're generous and kind and, and, we're, uh, and we're fairly, you know, we're just not reverberating from the effects of our actions every day, of, of harm to ourselves or others, then we naturally can enjoy the contact, a vivid sense of contact with sense experience. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting. And in an, an array of experiences that come out of those basic sense experiences. He talked about the great joy of solitude, the joy of connection with others. And we all know the, the amazing joy of, the, of sights and sounds. And we know the joys of the body, of the, the feeling of rapture that sometimes arises. So his issue was not in the... In, in not creating this notion that pleasure or the happiness of sense pleasures is bad, but it's our devotion to it that ends up becoming the problem. It's having our sense of well-being so dependent on it that we keep sowing the seeds of further suffering. He called this, as I mentioned in an earlier talk, he called this kind of happiness, which is a very real kind of happiness in our lives. He called it lo-kiya-sukha, Sukha, happiness, lokia of the world. Uh, in a sense, it's dependent on worldly conditions. And this kind of happiness, although it's quite wonderful and it reflects a certain purity of action and uh, living our lives well, it's the kind of happiness that comes from satisfying a particular hunger. And consequently, because it's about satisfying a particular hunger, and because the nature of experience is to change, the effect, or you could say the defect, of this kind of happiness, this kind of pleasure, is it's fleeting and it tends to increase our hunger. 
And of course, this is contrasted with what he later discovered, which I'll kind of lead into, which was a happiness called Lokutara Sukha, the happiness of a heart that is free of hunger or that is unstuck from the world, not bound or dependent on worldly conditions. So just to make it you know, more real and talking about this, this hunger, just reflect for a moment what your mind inclined toward today. Well, just to jog your memory, this is a, a caption from a cartoon. I think it was actually in the Wall Street Journal of all places. There's a guy who's climbed up the mountain to meet with the guru. And he says, hey, guru, I've always wondered what you guys do up there on the mountain all day. And the guru says, well, at sunrise I get up and I eat a handful of parched corn and I start meditating. And then at noon I eat another handful of parched corn and go back to meditating until dark. When I stop and eat a little more parched corn. Fantastic. What do you meditate about? And he says, espresso, chocolate-covered raisins, pizza, french fries, hot dogs, banana splits, pancakes, potato chips, donuts, baked Alaska, Twinkies, more espresso. (laughs) Bo Lozoff, I forgot to bring the reading with me, but he, he speaks so beautifully about how in our minds we're constantly and in our actions that, that follow from it, we're constantly trying to keep up with the Joneses. You know, trying to, to we're caught in that, in the, in the hunger that arises from the wanting mind, caught in wanting to the best of everything. And so we get caught in the cycle of good, better, best. And once you have the best, you always want more. And he says, you know, we're always wanting to keep up with the Joneses. And he says, but it's time you see that the Joneses are not happy. Their kids are on drugs, they're each one's on antidepressants, they're this is and that. He says they're caught in a dream and you know it's it's time to wake up from such a bad dream. So it's to begin to see that yes, there are extraordinary pleasures of the senses. There's an incredible pleasure in having being praised. Of course, that always the near the near shadow of it is blame. And there's it's it's extraordinary, extraordinarily pleasurable to experience some gain. But there's also its shadow, which is loss. So each of these depends on satisfying a hunger. And this is what the Buddha kind of intuited, that although you cannot deny that there's a lightness of being and a joy that comes from enjoying the, the different pleasures of the senses and everything that comes in our world, that there are defects to it and that it's not a reliable refuge. As we've talked a lot about, or at least I've talked a lot about, and I think the other teachers have, although I haven't been to many of the discourses, we come by this habit of associating happiness with satisfying hunger very easily and everything in our our world tends to generate more of this uh, kind of uh, wanting and so it's no it's natural that when when we sit here we realize the fruits of what we practice and just 
a review of this line from the Buddha where he said, if you want to understand your past, look at your present condition. If you want to understand your future, look at your present action. So it's this moment that we realize the fruits of what we've practiced, what the reverberations are in our minds and our bodies. And it's also in this moment that we, with the knowledge and insight, knowledge and understanding, we set in motion what will be our next arising present or our future, as you might call it. But one of the examples that, uh, that I just found so amazing that just describes the enormous momentum of the, um, at least the media world to induce us to more hunger. You can feel it in the spirit of this uh, article in the uh, Wall Street Journal. Again, you know, maybe it is the secret to happiness, the Wall Street Journal. Anyway, this was about Robert Gazuta. Uh, who was, or this was qu- quotations of Robert Gazuta, who was the, the late chairman of the board of Coca-Cola Company. Some of you may have heard this before, but um, I love to read this each time. He says, um, the Coca-Cola Company claims that it sells nearly half or 48% of the world's soft drinks. It also estimates that this represents less than 2% of the approximately 64 ounces of human fluid fluid human beings need every day. Gazzuto, Coke's driven chairman, apparently regards the other 98% as fair game. He writes, The Coca-Cola company is still unquenchably thirsty. Thirsty for more ways to reach more consumers in more places with more of our products creating more value for you, our shareholders. Truly, we're just getting started. And then he goes on. In the United States, individuals on average drink 363 Coca-Cola drinks a year, almost one a day. It's only five a year in China, nine in Indonesia, and 13 in Russia. At another point, Gazuto puts Coke in a grander perspective. A billion hours ago, human life appeared on earth. A billion minutes ago, Christianity emerged. A billion seconds ago, the Beatles changed music forever. A billion Coca-Colas ago was yesterday morning. (laughs) Translation, a billion Cokes are sold every two days. This is Lokia Sukha. <laughs> this, uh, this craving or wanting mind, the hunger mind, can take funny forms. And before I go on to the, to the story of of what happened to the Buddha next and what happens to us next. uh, I'd like to share with you um, an article that went across the internet about the uh, a way that the wanting mind expressed itself for one very hungry human being in Southern California and this is about the Darwin Award winners, a winner of 1997. The Darwin Awards It's an annual honor given to the person who did the gene pool, the biggest service, uh, by killing or injuring themselves in the most extraordinarily stupid way. (laughs) 
just to warm you up, the 1995 winner was a fellow who was killed by a Coke machine which toppled over on top of him as he was attempting to tip a free soda out of it. In, in 1996, the winner was an Air Force sergeant who attached a JATO rocket unit to his car and crashed into a cliff several thousand feet above the roadbed. And now the 1997 winner, Larry Waters of, Wa of Los Angeles, one of the few Darwin Award winners to survive his award-winning accomplishment. Larry's boyhood dream was to fly. When he graduated from high school, he joined the Air Force in hopes of becoming a pilot. Unfortunately, poor eyesight disqualified him. When he was finally discharged, he had to satisfy himself with watching jets fly over his backyard. One day, Larry had a bright idea. He decided to fly. He went to the local Army-Navy surplus store and purchased 45 weather balloons and several tanks of helium. The weather balloons, when fully inflated, would measure more than four feet across. Back home, Larry securely strapped the balloons to his sturdy lawn chair. He anchored the chair to the bumper of his Jeep and inflated the balloons with the helium. He climbed on for a test while, he, while it was still only a few feet above the ground. Satisfied it would work, Larry packed several sandwiches and a six-pack of Miller Lite, <laughs> loaded his pellet gun, figuring he could pop a few balloons when it was time to descend, and went back to the floating lawn chair. He tied himself in along with his pellet gun and provisions. <laughs> Larry's plan was to lazily float up to about 30 feet or so above his backyard after severing the anchor and in a few hours come back down. Things didn't quite work out that way. <laughs> when he cut the cord anchoring the lawn chair to his Jeep, he didn't float lazily up to 30 or so feet. Instead, he streaked into the LA sky as if shot from a cannon. He didn't level off at 30 feet, nor did he level off at 100 feet. After climbing and climbing, he leveled off at 11,000 feet. <laughs> at that height, he couldn't risk shooting any of the balloons, <laughs> lest he unbalance the load and really find himself in trouble. So he strayed, stayed there, drifting, cold and frightened, for more than 14 hours. Then he really got in trouble. He found himself drifting into the primary approach corridor of Los Angeles International <laughs> Airport. A United pilot first spotted Larry. He, he radioed the tower and described passing a guy in a lawn chair with a gun. <laughs> Radar, radar confirmed the existence of an object floating 11,000 feet above the airport. LAX emergency procedures swung into full alert and a helicopter was dispatched to investigate. LAX is right on the ocean. Night was falling and the offshore breeze began to flow. It carried Larry out to sea with the helicopter in hot pursuit. Several miles out, the helicopter caught up with Larry. Once the, flu de the crew determined that Larry was not dangerous, <laughs> <laughs> they, at they, at they attempted to close in for a rescue, but the draft from the blades would push Larry away whenever they neared. <laughs> Finally, the helicopter ascended to a position several hundred feet above Larry and lowered a rescue line. Larry snagged the line and was hauled back to shore. 
The difficult maneuver was flawlessly executed by the helicopter crew. As soon as Larry was hauled to Earth, he was arrested by waiting members of LAPD for violating LAX airspace. <laughs> As he was led away in handcuffs, a re reporter dispatched to cover the daring rescue asked why he had done it. Larry stopped, turned, and replied nonchalantly, a man can't just sit around. So I'm not sure that that ended Larry's hunger, but enough of the world of sense pleasures, as delightful as they are and they were for the Buddha, for him, his, um, <laughs> his hunger for something else was uh, stronger. And perhaps that desire arose in the Buddha's mind for, for that had a hunger for something that no other experience could satisfy, that no desire could fulfill. And so in a sense he began to swim opposite the stream, the, the torrent of the world of sense pleasures that most of us are caught in, even while we sit here on a retreat. And it's important to remember that we come by it honestly and to treat ourselves with great kindness as we see how many times we leap out of ourselves in hunger for the next uh, so the Buddha was so hungry, he told his dad, there's no way I can go into your business. There's no way I can become a king and do what you do and spread the kingdom and have more things and more stuff and, and, and that. It's just, it's, for me, it's misery. He says, one day sitting on the throne would be like sitting on a bed of coals if there's no peace in my heart, if there's no rest. And so he, his father, finally agreed for him to leave. And it's controversial, at least from pr our present view, that, that he left uh, uh, his bride and his newborn baby and all of that. And from our vantage point, it looks kind of, um, could seem kind of uncaring or something. But so powerful was that intent that he was willing to leave without regard for, for um, well, with regard, but without without letting it stop him. So he went to practice meditation, came to retreat on a nice hill like Spirit Rock. I, don't, I doubt the hall was this beautiful. This is, this is the heaven locus, the heaven, heaven, heaven realms here. But he was offered practices that had elements of what we're doing here, and they were specific uh, focus on objects of meditation. And very quickly he entered into, into uh, extreme, uh, what has been called super-mundane kind of rapture. His mind became so composed and concentrated. Again, I don't think this is any different than those moments that you had when your mind, in those moments when your mind came to rest for a few moments and felt at times unwavering. And there was a stillness and sometimes, and not always, there's a smooth rapture that flows through the body or, or, or there's kind of delight in the mind. But he entered into these very rarefied states of concentration. And I'm not going to get involved in what he saw there, but, but things like 
um, vast space and vast consciousness, limitless, formlessness, all kinds of incredible states of concentration. And he realized at that moment that he had moved on, that he had discovered a kind of happiness that was more refined, that was more potent than the happiness of ordinary sense pleasures. Most importantly about these these, uh, kinds of happiness is the mind at that time, the heart was not troubled by any of the hindrances. And perhaps you can remember times on this retreat up to this point where at times your, your heart was just not troubled by desire or aversion or restlessness or dullness or doubt. So it's not so remote what he experienced. Uh, and there are grada- gradations of this kind of happiness, what he called the happiness of samadhi or concentration. But most amazing about this kind of happiness, which made it so much more refined than the ordinary sense pleasures, is it could be sustained for long periods of time. You could have a long period where most pleasures, as delicious as they are, the most wonderful sexual experience, they're fleeting. They pale in relationship to the happiness and bliss of a mind that's composed and concentrated. So he moved beyond this happiness of sense pleasures to the happiness of concentration. He began to see, though, that even this most rarefied air of refined mental states, deep concentration, were actually still subsumed in that same understanding of dukkha or unsatisfactoriness, still subsumed in that same understanding that this is lokiya sukha. This is the happiness that is dependent on satisfying a hunger. This is a kind of happiness that depends on conditions This is a kind of happiness that by its nature appears and disappears and therefore is an unreliable refuge. And even though these teachers were well-renowned in their day and wanted him to join them and teach their students, he said, this is not, they're not teaching freedom here. They are not teaching freedom. They're teaching something that feels much more free than than being bound in the cycle of... of, uh, you know, trying to fly your balloon on a lawn chair. Much more refined, but nevertheless subject to the same laws of birth, sickness, old age, and death. So there's no freedom in it. So this is when the Buddha went off on his own. And each of us maybe has seen what happens on retreat when we arrive at that place of great composure and there's great peace and we say, oh God, I'm finally, I've finally arrived, I've got it. This is how meditation is supposed to be. This was worth the price of admission. We have those moments. And each of us have seen how those moments passed. And later on in his teaching, the Buddha said, listen, if you don't have experiences like this or great pleasure in meditation, something of that flavor, you're likely not to keep going. So this is, these very experiences are the springboard to Nibbana, the springboard to liberation. But they are also, because there's such a tendency with anything that's pleasurable, 
to want more of it, to, let, to have it be the cause and condition for more hunger, that we become corrupted by these experiences and then spend a lot of the rest of the retreat looking to reenact it for the rest of the day. But he, he got wise to this, as I know many of you have. You've seen the, the suffering in waiting for that next supremely quiet sitting. There's a, there's a kind of anxiety about waiting and hoping. And, uh, and it's so easy, even though it's associated with something so wonderful and meditative and inspiring, it's so easy to be corrupted, so easy to topple forward and over, overshoot the, the um, wise relationship to everything that occurs, that whatever arises passes away. I'm reminded of this line that um, is chanted every day in most countries where there are monks and nuns, and, and we even chant it here at 9 o'clock. I, I'm not sure that you've tuned into the line in the chant that goes, Anicca vada sankara upadava yadamino upakitua niruchanti desang upasamo sukho. You know that line, it basically says, all conditions that have the nature to arise, have the nature to pass away. Those who understand this basically have great happiness. So we we start to get a glimpse of that, and he clearly did, that these experiences were unreliable. So he'd heard of, or was asked to join some ascetics and tried, you know, the hardcore practice. And we all have tried the hardcore practice, where I think Jack mentioned the the Alan Watts... uh, view of you do practice because it's good for you, a kind of grim duty. Um, but of course, that all it does is make our minds tight and our bodies tired. Uh, but he tried that. He tried starving himself and doing all kinds of self-mortification things. And, and he became so skinny that it said that he could put his finger on his belly and touch his spine or something like that. And, of course, all it did was make him, his mind tight, rigid, and his body weak. And this has always spoken to me about you know, the, middle, the middle path between indulgence in sense pleasures and being overly ascetic or, or rigid. Uh, and it reminds me of the, of the tendency toward fundamentalism that even we find in the, in the Dharma, where instead of... Instead of openly, with, with a certain composure, examining the issues of desire and aversion, of happiness and unhappiness, we hear these teachings, desire is causing causes suffering, move beyond Lokiya Sukha to Lokutara Sukha, and we adopt the view, desires are bad, and then all of a sudden we get you know, really tight and we become very good meditators, very good people, and we actually cause ourselves more suffering by our abstention from things than we did, would by doing them with, with ease of being and a softness in our hearts. There's a, a Kabir poem, which I unfortunately I don't have with me, where he, he says that, you know, I, I tried to do this, I threw, the, I threw my shawl over my shoulder elegantly, I, I uh, stopped eating at this time, but then I realized I was angry all the time, and then I threw my thing over my shoulder, and then I realized I was very proud of myself. And we tend to, to do things and adopt views instead of examining for ourselves what is the nature of this experience? What's the nature of happiness? Where does it come from? Where does it go? So anyway, at a certain point, he realized, and I think 
this is a very key piece that, uh, that it's very important for the heart and the, the body to be well fed and as strong as possible and for the mind to be to have a certain contentment at least from what I've read almost everywhere where you hear the Buddha speak of concentration usually has with it something about uh, tranquility or calm and he remembered a time when he was about nine years old I think and he was resting under a, a rose apple tree and his he was very comfortable, yet not necessarily wanting anything. So he was in a kind of comfort or pleasure that was not born of hunger, not born of wanting. It was a, a kind of contentment, and that we can all taste that in meditation. And it really is a kind of springboard. It creates the conditions for us to meet our experience directly with, with a willingness and you know, without, without fighting, without struggling. So you can even get a sense as you think of the Buddha under, as a little, little boy resting easily under this beautiful tree with contentment and use that in your practice. So anyway, he finally took food and he, he had had enough of the ascetics and they basically thought he'd gone off the deep end because, you know, he started eating and then he finally, with still that one-pointed interest in, in finding a, a more reliable kind of happiness and freedom, he sat down under the Bodhi tree, and as the story goes, he, he committed himself not to get up until he had found what he was looking for. And so at that moment, at that time, he used the very practices that he'd been doing to arouse concentration and mindfulness and practice rhythmic mindfulness. And of course, if you can imagine being that intensely interested in being free, I find this very inspiring because it's like a, a lion, I, I call it a lion's roar. How many people declare with one-pointed intention that I want nothing else? And we've talked and joked about how, yeah, I really want freedom, but you know, if I don't have this in my life, then you know, maybe I should spend time this. He didn't care anymore. He wanted only that. And so there's something about being um, single-minded in our practice. This certainly doesn't have to take the shape that it did for the Buddha or look like him. Every one of us, as different trees in the forest, will, you know, will look different, act different, and our path will be different. And I'm reminded of the, of the uh, way that, I, I'm not sure whether this was the Buddha, but he said that the practice goes basically four ways for people. It's either very slow, no, it's very fast with um, very little suffering, very slow with very little suffering, very fast with a lot of suffering, and very slow with a lot of suffering. And none of that can be really predicted or controlled. Uh, and each of us will be different in that way. But in the Buddha's case, he sat under the Bodhi tree. And I think you'll recognize this from moments in your own practice. As he sat there and aroused concentration and mindfulness, he was visited by, as I think James mentioned last night, the, the, the different armies of Mara, the, all the temptations that he met with mindfulness. But he was faced with the hindrances, basically. Desire, aversion, restlessness, dullness, doubt. And just like each of us, in meeting them with mindfulness, they, they would lose their power. 
But slowly, slowly, as his concentration and mindfulness were aroused, and he saw, and again, this is just my way of talking about it, as he began to see the, all these different appearances in his mind and the changes in his body, he began to see that all of it, all of the different experiences, the moods, the thoughts, the images, the, the sensations, were appearing and disappearing all by themselves. He saw that he could not be defined by whatever thoughts that he had in his mind. He couldn't be defined by any moods that he had. He couldn't be defined by this body that was ever-changing. And he saw that it was without any root, without any home. Like from the Mahamudra, it says, the clouds that wander through the sky have no roots, no home, nor do the distinctive thoughts floating through the mind. Once the self-mind is seen, discrimination stops, it says. Not only was he beginning to see the arising and passing of phenomena, but because of the, the power of his mindfulness at time and the purity of his view, and purity of view, which is another uh, kind of leading cause for this kind of happiness that he then began to experience, Purity of view is seeing that the world consists of just these six experiences of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, and the consciousness of each one appearing and disappearing over and over. And this this recognition of the not-self nature of phenomena brings a certain joy to the heart, a certain ease, a certain relinquishment. And so as he saw the arising and passing of phenomena, he began to sense the kind of power and radiance uh, and the luminosity of the mind. It, it, literally, the mind kind of shined in its, in its radiance and reflected everything that appeared in it so clearly and faithfully. And perhaps on retreat, you may have noticed those moments where you could see things so clearly and the sense of the mind that w- was just of being just radiant and like a, like a, a well-wiped um, crystal or mirror that reflects everything so beautifully. He called this kind of happiness that came at that time, at least one version that I've read, he called it vipassana happiness, the happiness of seeing the arising and passing of phenomena. Now, it may not sound so profound as you hear these words, but to the practitioner, and to the, specifically to the Buddha, it was at this juncture that he moved from the world of lokiya sukha, the, the happiness that is dependent on satisfying the hunger, the happiness of, that's based on conditions. He tasted in that very moment the first taste of lokutara sukha, a happiness that wasn't depending on what was coming into his mind or his body. He just was resting so evenly at home, spacious, with the appearance and disappearance of the different phenomena. His mind had no sense of moving toward or away from what was occurring. And this was a taste, the first taste of freedom.
This is one description of what he said uh, at this time. He said, and this is a reflection that he gave later about what he noticed, any material form whatsoever, whether past, future, or present, in oneself or external, coarse or fine, inferior or superior, far or near, should all be regarded as it actually is by right understanding. Thus, this is not mine, this is not what I am, this is not myself. Any feeling, any perception, any formations, any consciousness whatsoever, this is not myself. So at this point, the Buddha had, had in a sense, abandoned uh, kind of joyfully the world of ordinary sense pleasures. And Suzuki Roshi speaks to, to a way of, of relinquishing the world of sense pleasures, at least our devotion to them, in a very beautiful way where he says that renunciation does not consist of giving up the things of this world, but in accepting that they go away. So at this point, he had accepted that things go away, and, and his mind was resting in what's also been called a state of high equanimity, the joy of equanimity, the, the joy of non-reactiveness, the joy in the capacity to be able to meet the vicissitudes of one's mind and body, of one's life, of our, myself, of others, with a certain balance and poise, with great love, but without wavering, without being moved, without having my sense of well-being dependent on whether something turns out a certain way. Again, alluding to the teaching on equanimity. And it was through this equanimity that uh, it's often described that this vipassana happiness or equanimity becomes the gateway for the, the highest kind of happiness. And you can just imagine the Buddha He's seeing that I am not this mind, I am not this body, this is not me. Uh, All this phenomena appearing and disappearing and the consciousness that knows it appearing and disappearing. And the question arising, who am I? What am I? And the mind through through no longer moving toward or away from any experience, simply relaxed into itself, kind of enfolded in itself. That's something I read in the in the sutras, something about the mind enfolding in itself. And at that moment, there was a flash of insight, a flash of understanding that whatever had been searching, whatever who was the searcher had been found as the very nature of his own mind. He had tasted the, the highest happiness called Nibbana. called the peace or the rest, the coolness that lies beyond the mind and body process. Lokutara Sukha. This is a passage of, uh, again, a translation, and I'm not sure exactly that these words were uttered, but they may give you a flavor for what uh, he described Nibbana like. He said, there's a field of experience beyond the entire field of matter, (laughs) 
the entire field of mind that is neither this world nor another world, nor both, neither moon nor sun. This I call neither arising nor passing away, nor abiding, neither dying nor rebirth. It is without support, without development, without foundation. This is the end of suffering. The Japanese teacher, Dayo Kokoshi, I may have read this earlier in the retreat, but I'll read it again. There is a reality even prior to heaven and earth. Indeed, it has no form, much less a name. Eyes fail to see it. It has no voice for ears to detect. To call it mind or Buddha violates its nature, for it then becomes like a visionary flower in the air. It is not mind nor Buddha, absolutely quiet yet illuminating in a mysterious way. It allows itself to be perceived only by the clear-eyed. It is Dharma truly beyond form and sound. It is Tao having nothing to do with words. Wishing to entice the blind, the Buddha has playfully let words escape his golden mouth. Heaven and earth are ever since filled with entangling briars. O my good worthy friends gathered here, if you desire to listen to the thunderous voice of the Dharma, exhaust your words, empty your thoughts, for then you may come to recognize this one essence. So clearly this one essence, this Nibbana, is near, I would say nearer than near, nearer than the breath itself, <coughs> discovered as the very nature of of the mind. It was described just briefly, it described as in kind of three parts, that, that flash of, of insight that occurred uh, in the mind of the Buddha that occurs to beings who, who recognize this. And this flash of insight has, the, has such a power that when it occurs, and it supposedly comes in different stages, when it occurs, it's so shattering to our normal paradigm, our normal way of seeing the world, that certain tendencies of mind literally on the spot are uprooted. And it's said with the, for example, the first flash of this insight that three tendencies of mind are uprooted. One is the belief in self. Two is belief in rites and rituals as uh, meaning anything about getting enlightened. And the third is, uh, is doubt. And it's said that, th- that as one goes along and experiences more of these flashes, uh, the forces of greed and hatred, uh, and, fo- and finally, last fetter of all to be uprooted is conceit, or the comparing mind, putting yourself above, below, or equal to anyone else. So be patient, since... since uh, if you see that, it's even the, the so-called you know, hotshot yogis experience conceit. But I think it's also helpful to know that it's described as something that occurs every moment when there is, and I think James alluded to this, 
This happiness of Nibbana is every moment when the mind is free of grasping aversion and delusion. Every moment that there is that moment of re-arising awareness, because it's impossible for there to be awareness and have there be greed, hatred, and ignorance in the same instant. So it literally erases conditioning of grasping aversion and delusion. The Tibetan teacher, Tulku Ergen Rinpoche, spoke about that moment of awareness this way, and I think it's important to put it in the context of Nibbana. The moment of noticing is a moment of re-emerging presence. These are our most successful moments, certainly no cause for judgments or regrets. These are sudden awakenings. It's important to encourage this re-emerging presence by letting go, completely relaxing, as soon as you wake up to where you are. By practicing, re-emerging presence becomes a sparkle, an illuminating experience that opens itself to glimpses of vastness. These moments are the essence of sitting. Awareness is the mind's essence. Anyone who has a mind has awareness. It's already there. Awareness is not something we've created conceptually by or from our intellect. When we are awake, aware of what is happening, we have touched bare awareness itself. We don't need to attain anything superior to that. That's enough. Do you believe me? Enough. We are nurturing this presence, this awareness. Since the ego habit is to identify with thought and sensation as the reality, and the essential reality is obscured. Ajahn Buddhadasa put it this way. He said, in voidness, which is another way of saying the same thing, in voidness, hunger stops and there is true happiness. He goes on in one of his passages. He says, whether Mr. Smith or Mrs. Jones or anyone at all has a mind free of grasping and clinging, at that moment, what does the person have? Please think it over. We can see that the person has attained all the traditional practices at that moment. The triple refuge, the giving, virtuous conduct, meditation, discernment of truth, and even the path realizations, their fruits and nirvana. At that moment of non-grasping, one has certainly attained the first practice, that is the triple refuge. One has reached the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. For to have a heart free of mental defilements and dukkha is to be one with the heart of the triple gem. One has reached them without having to chant Buddham Saranangachami, I take refuge in the Buddha, crying out Buddham Saranangachami and so on is just a ritual, a ceremony of entrance, an external matter. It doesn't penetrate to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha in the heart. If at any moment a person has a mind void of grasping and clinging to I and mine, even if for an instant the mind has realized voidness. It is one and the same as the heart of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. He goes on and says that this, at this moment, one uh, is practicing dana. The meaning of giving is to let go, to end all grasping at and clinging to things as I or mine. At the moment that one has a mind void of ego consciousness, then one has made the supreme offering, for even the self has been given up What can there be left to give? Thus, at any moment that a person has a mind truly void of self, even when even the self has been completely relinquished, he or she has developed giving to its perfection. 
goes on to say that your conduct in a moment of mindfulness is perfect. Uh, and as for concentration, the void mind, that mind that is free of me, mine, in that instant, is perfect samadhi, is um, supremely focused firmness of mind. Only the mind that is void of grasping at and clinging to I and mind can have true and perfect stability. And that's instantaneously, anyone in any moment. The Buddha talked about the kinds of happiness after his awakening. And he said this, Seclusion is happiness for the one contented, by whom the law is learnt and who has seen, and friendliness toward the world is happiness for him that is forbearing with live creatures. Disinterest in the world is happiness for him that has surmounted sense desires. But to be rid of the conceit, I am, that is the greatest happiness of all. So it's common for someone who has touched this highest happiness to to let out a a song of realization. And uh, I take these songs of realization as direct instructions for for how uh, how to carry on. And this was the Buddha's, at least, as it was passed on to me. Through many births, In the wandering on, I ran, seeking but not finding the maker of this house. Dukkha is birth again and again. O housemaker, you have been seen. You shall not make a house again. All your beams are broken up, rafters of the ridge destroyed, the mind gone to the unconditioned. To craving's destruction it has come. So the great beauty of the Dharma is that if one aims at the highest happiness, the happiness of Nibbana or whatever, uh, that highest happiness, that secure refuge from suffering, if one aims for the highest happiness, that all the other kinds of happiness uh, come in its wake. And so if you have this idea or this terror, I have to give this up or have to give that up, it usually surprising abundance, surprising good fortune comes to those who, who give themselves wholeheartedly to the Dharma. Of course, if you devote yourself wholeheartedly to the Dharma in order to gain some kind of greater worldly pleasure, you may be in trouble. <laughs> but nevertheless, aim for that highest happiness. But remember also that it is nearer than near. And so I close with a frequently shared, also spontaneous song of realization from the uh, venerable Gendon Rinpoche, Tibetan teacher. He says, happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There's nothing to do or to undo Whatever momentarily arises in the body-mind has no real importance at all. 
and has little reality whatsoever. So why identify with and become attached to it, passing judgment upon it and ourselves? Far better to simply let the entire game happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves, without changing or manipulating anything. And notice how everything vanishes and reappears magically again and again, time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching, or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, it is always available and accompanies you every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They're like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there, open, inviting, comfortable. So make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who is already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. Nothing to do or to undo, nothing to force, nothing to want, and nothing missing. Emaho, marvelous. Everything happens by itself. Let's sit quietly. <laughs>